You're listening to Iran's Weekly Wire. I'm Roland Elliott Brown. Iranian human rights defenders often feel besieged in their own country, but they can always take heart that their cause has gone global. Earlier this month, Iran was at the center of a debate on the other side of the world, in the National Congress of Brazil. The controversy focused on Brazil's gesture of support for Iran at the United Nations Human Rights Council in Geneva. Back in March, Brazil shocked human rights defenders by abstaining from a vote to renew the mandate of Ahmed Shahid. He's the UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights in Iran. Iran wants to end Shahid's mandate, and Iran seems to have convinced Brazilian diplomats that its human rights situation is getting better, not worse. But Brazilians who really care about human rights in Iran aren't buying it. Mani Mostafi, from the U.S.-based human rights group Impact Iran, brought this story to Iran Wire's attention. Since this story is about how the UN deals with human rights, I asked him to explain the role of the UN Special Rapporteurs. Ahmed Shahid is the current um, holder of the mandate of the UN United Nations Special Rapporteur on the situation of human rights in the Islamic Republic of Iran. What a special rapporteur does generally is monitor human rights situations, report these situations to the UN bodies, particularly the Human Rights Council, which is the main UN body that monitors human rights. What this special rapporteur did was, you know, write annual reports, biannual reports actually, writes biannual reports on the situation of human rights in Iran and covers a range of topics, whether it's women's rights, free expression, you know, the arrests of human rights defenders and journalists. Um, the special rapporteur has done a lot of work on the death penalty because Iran's use of the death penalty in contravention of international law has sort of skyrocketed under his tenure. Um, you know, people being executed for crimes that you're not supposed to be able to be executed for, people being executed for crimes without fair trial. So it's a lot of what um, this special rapporteur is focused on. The UN assigns country-specific special rapporteurs to countries where there are urgent or chronic human rights problems. There are 14 country-specific rapporteurs assigned to trouble spots around the world. Examples include Somalia, Syria, North Korea, and the Palestinian territories. The UN added Iran to the list in 2011, but Iran resents having a special rapporteur assigned to its case. The Iranian government has naturally been extremely, I shouldn't say natural, it shouldn't be a natural thing because the Iranian government should see this as an opportunity, but they have been extremely hostile to the special rapporteur. Um, That's not um, atypical of, of countries that receive these country-specific mandates. They think it's based on um, bias within the Human Rights Council, and they don't think it has anything to do with their actual records. But in reality, it does have to do with the records. It's not, it's not a coincidence that this special rapporteur was created after the events of 2009, where the number of arrests and repression of uh, um, civil society activists and human rights defenders skyrocketed and sort of in a lot of ways continues today in slightly different forms. So where does Brazil fit into all this? Brazil and Iran aren't often mentioned in the same breath. The last time the two countries were in the news together was in 2010. That was when Brazil and Turkey jointly proposed a solution to the nuclear dispute between Iran and the major powers. The U.S. rejected it. 
Brazil's president at the time, Lula da Silva, was friendly to Iran. Notably, he provided Iran diplomatic cover on human rights questions at the UN. When his successor, Dilma Rousseff, came to office in 2011, she vowed to change that. Rousseff was a political prisoner under Brazil's military dictatorship in the 1970s. She had been badly tortured in prison, and she criticized da Silva's attitude to Iran. Here's Mani Mostafi. When the current Brazilian president was um, running for office, she had sort of made a pledge that she would break with her um, predecessor, President Lula, and um, his policies towards abstaining on resolutions at the United Nations around human rights in Iran. What happened right after she was elected was that there was a resolution put forth at the Human Rights Council in Geneva to create this special rapporteur position. That gave Brazil an opportunity to become a strong supporter of this of this resolution. And not only had they voted yes on it for several years in a row, the entire time they were at the Human Rights Council, but they were also vocal supporters of it. They publicly encouraged the Iranian government to cooperate with the special rapporteur. They would raise concerns for Iran's treatment of um, Baha'is, of journalists, of human rights defenders, um, Iran's lack of commitment to eliminating gender-based violence. But every year, members of the Human Rights Council have to vote on whether to extend the rapporteur's mandate. Brazil had always voted yes after 2011. But this year, they abstained. Brazilian diplomats issued a rather unconvincing statement to explain why. They said they abstained because Iran had accepted some UN recommendations and had renewed its engagement with the UN's human rights system. Brazil expressed hopes that Iran's recent moves would translate into effective measures to protect human rights but they didn't cite any measurable improvements. Even so, there were still enough votes to keep Ahmed Shahid in his job. But people who watch human rights in Iran were alarmed by Brazil's sudden shift. Here's Hadi Gayemi. He's the director of the International Campaign for Human Rights in Iran. I asked him about the consequences of Brazil's abstention. Uh, well, remember, these things are trends within the UN mechanism. Every vote is actually a precursor to a future vote. So, abstention in March 2015 is very troubling because Brazil may very well argue in March 2016, when the annual renewal comes up, uh, to change its vote even to a worse direction from abstention to no. And uh, that could have uh, serious consequences by rallying other countries of the South to follow suit, and that could put the entire mandate in jeopardy. Shireen Abadi, the Iranian Nobel Peace Prize winner, also weighed in. She published an op-ed in the Brazilian newspaper, Folha de Sao Paulo. She wrote that five years ago, President Rousseff inspired hope by criticizing the old style of Brazilian diplomacy. But now, she said, Rousseff has gone back on her commitments. She reminded Rousseff that Iran is still the country that executes the most prisoners per capita. She said Iran has executed more people this year than in each of the past 12 years. She also asked what many rights groups are asking. In light of all this, 
why did President Rousseff remove her support for the mandate? Human rights groups in Brazil are trying to find out. I spoke to Camila Asano, who works for the Brazilian human rights group, Connectus. Connectus looked into the story using Brazil's new freedom of information law. Since my organization, Connectus Human Rights, wasn't at all satisfied with the explanation of vote, we tried to understand what are the reasons for this abstention for Brazil. And, well, since 2012, here in Brazil, we have this Freedom of Information Act. We use this Freedom of Information Act to ask for the cables exchanged uh, among the Brazilian embassy in Tehran, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs here in our capital, Brasilia, and our, the Brazilian mission in Geneva that was in charge of voting in the resolution. While Connectus couldn't get hold of all the documents, the ones they did see told the story of Iranian government lobbying. The big player there was a famous Iranian diplomat, Mohammad Javad Larajani. Cables that are unclassified, so we could have access. They show that the Iranian government is explicitly asked the Brazilian government to vote against the resolution or to abstain in the resolution. And then the, in these cables, there is a copy of um, a document, like a dossier, presented by Larijani, showing, according to the Iranian government, how is the situation now. So, based on this, we see that this decision of abstaining the resolution one is, in a way, accepting uh, a demand from the Iranian government, and two, is based also in, in pieces of information provided by um, the, the Human Rights Council headed by Larajani. Now, the Human Rights Council headed by Larajani is actually a branch of the Iranian judiciary. It's called the High Council for Human Rights. One of Larajani's main jobs is to explain Iran's position on human rights issues. I tried calling Larajani for this podcast, but I couldn't reach him. You can get a pretty good idea of his views from an interview he gave to Euronews last November. This is what he said when Euronews asked him about the criticism Iran gets, both from the UN Human Rights Council and from independent human rights groups. Well, I think that Iran right now is targeted uh, I mean, is falling victim of another new kind of terrorism. I call it media and political terrorism. In the uh, council, if you look to the number of people who talked, uh, about over 100 uh, states uh, expressed their views about Iran, something around 50 states, which are United States and Europeans mostly, they criticized Iran, and the rest, which are over 70, they were very sympathetic with Iran. For us, the word, the word is not United States and Britain and France. The governments who are criticizing us, it's quite apparent that there is a kind of political uh, the, the structured uh, criticism in here, politically manipulated. So I asked Mani Mostafi if there is any truth to Larajani's claim that it's usually biased Western countries that criticize Iran at the UN Human Rights Council. I mean, I really don't know what Human Rights Council Larajani is talking about because it tends to be that criticism of Iran is cross-regional and concern is cross-regional. Even countries say as friendly as Ecuador to Iran will still often make statements that they have concern over Iran's use of the death penalty, for example. 
And I think that this criticism of the council and one block within the council having a bias is actually ironically very similar to um, the criticism Israel has over the council, which is that the uh, Islamic countries, the Organization of Islamic Countries, have a bias against Israel, and they they steer the council's behavior in one direction. So I think what Larry Johnny really needs to be responding to is whether or not the allegations made against Iran's human rights record are legitimate or not, and not whether or not there's um, a sense of selectivity involved in it. Because I think selectivity can never happen if the human rights situation wasn't that grave. In the same interview, Larry Johnny also implied that independent human rights groups, like Amnesty International, are imposing their own cultural biases. Second comes to the what is called NGOs. There is the second point in, in the criticism against us, and this is overlooking the differences. Our experience in the last 35 years is to create a political and civil structure, a polity as you call it in, in, in English, um, based on Islamic rationality, which is democratic, but it is not liberal, it is not secular. I asked Manny Mostafi about that, too. The other thing we have to keep in mind is that Iran is only being held accountable to international human rights treaties that it is a willful member of. So this is not some sort of foreign-imposed standard. This is a standard that the Iranian government signs on to and continues to claim to be beholden to legally under international law. So when we talk about things like um, freedom from torture, and Larry Johnny complains that there's some Western conspiracy to criticize them for torture based on some, you know, arbitrary set of values. These aren't arbitrary values. These aren't Western values. These are universal norms which Iran has agreed are universal norms. Still, Larry Johnny's arguments appear to have gone some way with Brazil's diplomats. Brazilian civil society, on the other hand, has its doubts. Here's Camila Asana. The fact that the Brazilian National Congress convened two hearings to discuss this abstention shows that there's not enough support in the Brazilian state for this abstention, or at least the explanation of vote provided by the Brazilian diplomacy wasn't enough to convince us here. So I think it was quite positive to see this reaction of the legislative branch in calling the executive branch to explain this. The other positive thing is to see the reaction of the Brazilian society in a, in a more broad way. And Brazil may be especially well positioned to influence Iran, precisely because it's a powerful, non-Western country. Here's Mani Mostafi again. I think that what Brazil doesn't understand is it doesn't understand its own influence when it comes to Iran, because Brazil is really a country that could support all the um, resolutions of the United Nations that Iran does not like and still have an active, engaged relationship with the government where they can sit down and talk about issues and try to figure out if there's a way that Brazil can assist the Iranian government in human rights reforms. They can have that type of relationship, but at the same time um, endorse these resolutions. And it's because of who they are, because they're a big, strong, influential, global South, South American government. And the Iranian government 
is not in a position to isolate itself from that type of ally, and it wouldn't. So Brazil can send a strong message and lend a helping hand at the same exact time. Brazil and Iran may seem worlds apart, but next year in Geneva, the rights of Iranian citizens may depend on the workings of Brazilian democracy. That's all from Iran's Weekly Wire. To find out more about stories like this, join us on Twitter or Facebook, or visit iranwire.com. Thank you.